0: Get your broadband moving all around your home so you can start flexing in the living room. And that sourdough can start rising in the kitchen. For streaming from the front door to the attic, connect with our best ever Wi-Fi all around your home. Sky Broadband. Your world is limitless. For more information, see sky.ie forward slash speeds.
1: welcome to Murder in the Land of Oz. Hi everyone. How are we?
2: How? Yeah, how is everybody doing? Let's have a dialogue. Like
1: Blue's Clues as we said the last time. And how's your day going? That's great. Um, I'm here in the pod loft with Zane and Fifi Cat and Ellen is in Hobart I as am. normal.
2: Yes. We are separated by many thousands of (laughs) kilometres.
1: Many, many thousands. Um, We need to shout out our Patreon. So, Ellen, who who are we shouting out today?
2: Today we are shouting out the beautiful Sophia. Sophia is 30. Sophia! Sophia, you're too young to listen to this podcast. Sophia, where are you getting the money from to pay for the Patreon? I mean, it's only $5, but where are you getting it?
0: Where are you getting
2: this money from? doll thank you for wasting it on us we appreciate it i
1: mean you know we love ya. oh doll you sweetie
2: pie has she said anything on the patreon yet yeah we we've messaged she's super sweet um she needs to like brush her teeth and go to bed though because this episode is not appropriate for children
1: oh sweet baby angel not copied from my favorite matter um cute okay so yes sophia thank you so much for subscribing please go to bed and brush your teeth and avoid boys at all costs okay
2: no dating until you're 30 exactly
1: ellen and i are on both on hiatus so if we're not dating then you're not allowed to date exactly um so yes if you would like to become a patreon um there is like some really cool benefits that you get as a patreon um, there's patreon only content um we'll pop the link in the show notes we also do have um merch available botany solves crime so you can match your t-shirt to dr gordon Geimer, the guy who basically solved the murder of Alison baden clay do so at your own will you know okay it's an Ellen episode, so like, strap yourself in, folks. It's going to be a bumpy ride, and I'm just about to find out what case she's doing, I and I'm so
2: excited. I purposely withheld this from Jess, and she didn't ask me what episode I was doing, and I never told her, so it's like...
1: But now I'm very excited. But
2: you definitely know what it is.
1: Do I? Snowtown.
2: <laughs> oh, my God! I knew you were going to do it, you sneaky bitch! Even though we explicitly said we were like, the one case that we're not going to cover, we're not going to cover Snowtown. It's too gross. It's too much. And let me tell you the backstory. So I've been kind of like depressed recently. Hold on. Let me say it
1: out loud for Zane because Zane, she's doing Snowtown. Yep.
2: Okay. Zane's just like immediately (laughs) jumped out the loft window. Um, So I've been kind of down and I was like trying to find like a, a case to do. And it, like, just kept on coming up in all my searches and stuff like that. I had other ideas about what I wanted to do, but I was like, I really want to find something, like, completely the opposite of this case. I was like, I want to find something low-key that, like, nobody's ever really heard of so I can bring attention to, like, you know, maybe something that people don't know about. But instead, I was like, why don't I just do the most famous Serial killing case in Australian history that is so depressing and so disgusting and has so many horrible. It's details really foul. That like people will see the title of this episode and be like, "Oh no, I don't want to make myself depressed today."
1: I feel like everyone's gonna be like super stoked. Um, if you're in a, like a really depressing way.
2: If you're feeling stoked right now, please de-stoke yourself because it is not stoked. I thought De- that I could. Stoke. I thought that I could handle it. I was like feeling confident. I was like, "I'm tough. I can handle so many things." <laughs> You know, I've been reading about crime since I was like 10 years old. There's nothing, you know, I used to love reading descriptions of like how ancient Egyptians would like embalm bodies and like pull organs out of people's noses and stuff. Like that was <laughs> recreation for me as a child. So I was like, this is going to be no problem. Anyway, the past two weeks have been the worst two weeks of my life. <laughs> <laughs> reading about oh, doll. reading about this case like in every minute of my free time and then just getting to writing the episode and just being like... <laughs> it's all right it's been a lot okay but let's no wonder this is going to be a two-parter i'm so excited it's a two-parter <laughs> it's a two-parter and that will that has a little bit of backstory as well it was one part but the the first part was just entirely about the murders and it was like ten thousand words long and i hadn't started anything about the trial or or the police investigation, or anything like that. So I had split up into two, but it's a little weirdly formatted. So we're actually going to start off with the investigation. stuns, And then in part two, we're going to go back and kind of go through a little bit of, like, the context. No, that makes sense. That's kind of what you did with Ivan Malat so that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I'm I'm plagiarising myself. Love it. I'm plagiarising myself. This is the only way I know how to write episodes. Okay. Uh, okay. So I'm, I'm curling up. I'm ready. Coming yeah, Tell up, you're getting comfortable. Um, yeah. I want to say that the warnings for this episode include obviously murder, um, as well as paedophilia, child sexual abuse, abuse in general, torture, dismemberment, all those things. So if that's not your bag,
1: you can turn off. Yeah. If we'll have there's some more lighthearted vintage murders that you can yeah. listen to. That yeah. go
2: go listen to one of the super old we'll ones. To them. <laughs> where we didn't. You don't even know anything about the bodies. Um yeah. This Great. is not. That one. This is not that time. Yes, Snowtown Murders. Honestly, the most famous serial killing case in Australia, I would say, probably without question, Um, been the subject of many documentary, um, a very successful film. The film, I found out, made $8,000 in the United States. What? So maybe not that successful um, overseas, but you can find it on YouTube. I did watch it. It's on Stan. I don't have Stan. You have to pay for that. It's on YouTube for free. (laughs) Stunning. Um, I, watched I couldn't it and get through I, the
1: first 40 minutes.
2: Yeah, it's one of the most gruesome, depressing movies I've ever seen. So obviously everybody, has, everybody kind of knows about Snowtown and The Bodies in the Barrels, very famous case, but I didn't know and I'm hoping that nobody else knew that it actually just started off as a missing persons investigation. So what happened was is that the major crimes unit in South Australia, like, you know, they're dealing with major crimes, they're dealing with homicides, they're dealing with really serious stuff, and then in their downtime, they would investigate, their downtime, which like probably didn't exist, they would investigate like cold case, cold cases and like a missing persons cases. So in July of 1997, um, Detective Senior Constable Craig Patterson, who was a major crimes detective, like the, the kind of cold cases he was assigned, was this missing persons case about this 18 year old kid named Clinton Trezise who was last seen alive in August of 1992, but he wasn't officially reported missing until 1995. So his family thought – he and his family didn't have a great relationship. Um, they thought that he just kind of gone off as, of his own accord, and then eventually in 1995 mm. they were like, you know what, we haven't heard from Clinton in three years. Maybe something's wrong.
1: Oh, God.
2: So this, this case ends up on this guy's desk in 1997. So he starts reading the file um, – Sidebar to this story, in July of 1994, a skeleton was discovered in this field owned by these two farmers um, at a place called Lower Light, which is outside of Adelaide, a few hundred kilometers outside of Adelaide. So the police were called and the whole area was, the grave was excavated um, and they collected all the bones from like 50 miles away or whatever because they, not 50 miles, 50 meters away because they'd been scattered away by animals. Um, so the grave that this skeleton was buried in was literally only 10 centimetres deep. So it was a super shallow grave. They could tell from the situation that they were probably going to be dealing with a murder. Um, you know, yeah, shallow grave in the middle of a field doesn't really scream anything other than murder. <laughs> Don't so, say anything good. It is. It's not good. They're not like, oh, I think this person was loved and cared for. Uh, so, yeah, they confirmed to the media that they believed that they were investigating a murder, and the skeleton was compared to missing persons all around Australia and overseas, and there was also some media speculation that it could possibly, the skeleton was possibly related to the family murders, which is another whole, right, yeah. whole cook-chook of South Australian serial killings that we're oh not going to get you into. you just said cook-chook. I did, I spend way too much time talking to you. <laughs> um... So it was determined that the John Doe was around 17 years old and that he had been savagely beaten and dumped face down in the paddock around two years prior to the discovery of the body. So a facial reconstruction was made and shared through the media, but nobody came forward to identify the victim. And a $100,000 reward for information was eventually put forward, but nobody claimed it. Jesus, for John
1: Doe, that's a lot of money.
2: That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, especially like what usually happens in Australia is like they maybe have like a small amount and then it gets increased over time. But yeah, it was basically yeah a hundred thousand dollars. So it was a pretty Christ. it was a pretty big story. So as I said, that was in nineteen ninety four. Um, Clinton Trezias wasn't reported as missing until nineteen ninety five, and when he was, they did compare a photo of him to the skull of the lower light John Doe, but the examiner determined that it wasn't a match, and the case ended up going cold until it ended up on the desk of Detective Patterson. So he reviewed the case. Um, he he. Like, re-noted the fact that the skull was kind of similar. Like Clinton, Clinton kind of matched the appearance of the yeah. little like John Doe, but he read that they'd already decided that it wasn't a match. So he was like, okay, other avenues. So as I said, you know they investigate these kind of cases on their downtime. So it'd be a couple of months until they would ha- he found a breakthrough in Clinton's case, mm. um, and that was when another missing person's file came to the attention of Major Crimes. So, a former associate of Trezice's, who is a man by the name of Barry Lane, had gone missing. So, uh, Barry Lane, he was born in 1955. He was gay and a cross-dresser, and he was also a convicted pedophile. Mm-hmm. So, he was reported missing on the 27th of October 1997 by a woman named Michelle, who was a former fiancé of Barry Lane's. So... She reported him missing and told the police this incredibly messed up story. So for context, um, Barry had met Michelle and he told her that he had previously been gay, but he was cured or whatever. And they would hang out at church services and Salvation Army meetings and things like that. They ended up getting engaged, but the relationship didn't last very long. So Michelle had three children. And as I mentioned, Barry Lane was a convicted pedophile and he wasn't allowed around children. So child services... Child Services ended up stepping in to inform Michelle about Barry's previous conviction and to ensure that he was never, like, left alone around the children. And so Michelle and Barry ended up splitting up um, because of the whole pedophile thing, but also because... Good girl. Yeah, smart. Um, Because of that and also because Barry had invited this 18-year-old boy named Thomas Trevelyan to come and live with him and Michelle. And Michelle was like, I'm not into this. Goodbye, Barry. Um, Goodbye, Barry. Yeah, exactly. So Thomas had a few, he had quite some serious mental health issues and he was violent, which is part of why Michelle wasn't super into him living with them. And he was, she was also pretty suspicious of Barry's like intentions with this 18 year old boy living in their house. So her last contact was with Barry. But nothing sus though. Nothing sus. nothing sus. Um, her last contact with Barry was in October of 1997 when she received this kind of weird sounding phone call from him saying that he and Thomas were driving somewhere north of Adelaide on a trip and that their car had broken down and he asked her to like check their mail and feed their dogs because he was going to be away for a while. So a few days passed and Thomas Trevelyan returned by himself to Barry Lane's home. And then a few weeks later, Michelle was informed by a neighbor that Thomas Trevelyan had killed himself. So Thomas's body was found on November 4th, 1997, hanging from a tree in a remote wooded area of One Tree Hill north of Adelaide. So Michelle thought the timing of Thomas's suicide and Barry's disappearance was pretty suspicious. Um, So she contacted the police and informed them of Barry's disappearance and told them, along with this, that Barry had confessed to her a few months prior that he'd been involved with a murder. He told her that he had helped his former partner, a man named Robert Wagner, dispose of human human remains somewhere up north so detective patterson had known like from the missing persons file that clinton trezise was a former associate of barry lane's and he kind of kept an eye on the lane investigation which would go on for several months without bearing much fruit so the police would discover that his mother and sister had received weird calls from him claiming that he was coming up to visit his sister in queensland um but his voice sounded strained and nervous on the phone and there was they could hear voices and laughter in the background So in the course of the investigation, a former neighbor of Lane's told police that he personally hadn't seen Barry in over a year, but he knew somebody who had. And this was the first time that the name of John Bunting would come up in the investigation. So John Bunting had known Barry Lane quite well, um, and he had told this other neighbor of Lane's that Lane was living in the Murray Bridge area east of Adelaide, where Bunting himself lived with his partner, Elizabeth Harvey. So police phoned Bunting's residence and spoke to Elizabeth Harvey, who said that she didn't know where Lane lived, but John Bunting had apparently seen him three weeks prior. And she told police to ask Robert Wagner about his whereabouts, as he would have a better idea about Lane than she would. Mm. So police ended up contacting Wagner. Um, He informed them that he had had no contact with Lane for a long time, um, but he had seen him at a shopping center a few weeks ago. And that was all the information they would get from those two people at that time. So, in connection with the Lane disappearance, um, Detective Batterson also reviewed uh, Thomas Trevelyan's case file. So, Thomas Trevelyan, as I mentioned before, he had been seriously mentally ill. He had been diagnosed with schizophrenia at the age of 14, and he believed that he had served in the military, um, and he would wear army clothes all the time and tell people that he was a sergeant or a lieutenant and tell them stories about, you know, his military service. But he was only 18, so he hadn't actually served in the military. Um, so there was this story that after Thomas's death, one of his cousins, a woman named Lenore Penner, uh, recounted to police. So she had told police that in October of 1997, after Barry Lane went missing and only a few days before Thomas's death in November, Thomas had told Lenore that he and two friends had killed Barry Lane because Barry had abused them. She said that he and the men had tortured Barry to get his social security numbers and bank details so they could withdraw money from his account, partly so they could share the money and partly so it looked like Barry was still alive and accessing his bank account. So Thomas had told Lenore that he was worried that the other killers would come for him next and four days later he was dead. Initially this tip of Lenore's was not maybe given the attention, it should have been because the police the police firstly believed that Barry Lane hadn't been killed and that he had gone to Queensland. Um, And the second reason was that Thomas's case really looked like an open and shut suicide. Suicide, Um, yeah. Hanging from a tree. Hanging from a tree, exactly. Um, But Detective Patterson was like, "Mm, this seems suspicious. So he looked over Barry Lane's bank records and found that while Barry had mostly used ATMs around his home prior to his disappearance... After October of 1997, his card was accessed from ATMs some distance away at a BP Express station in Elizabeth Vale, North Adelaide. So a camera was set up at the ATM on the 1st of July, 1998, and about a week later, it would record a man who was clearly not Barry Lane using his card. The receipts from the transaction were retrieved and analyzed for fingerprints, and the image of the man who had used Barry Lane's card would be identified by a Northern Suburbs police officer as none other than Robert Wagner. So a few weeks later, they set up another also surveillance- Also
1: the name of a movie star. So every time you say that, I'm like, no, 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 not that one.
2: Who is Robert Wagner, the movie star? Um, he was married to Natalie Wood. Oh, old timey stuff. I don't care. Um, <laughs> so they set up another surveillance operation a few weeks later. Wait, is, wasn't he on the boat when she died? Was he the one that yeah. was on the boat when she died? Okay, I do care. It's yeah. about a crime. Um. So they followed Wagner and they witnessed him withdrawing um, $360 from Barry Lane's account at the BP Express station, then heading over to Murray Bridge to the home of John Bunting. So it was obvious that something nefarious was going on, but with no hard evidence connecting Wagner and Bunting to Lane's disappearance or possible death and surveillance teams in short supply, Detective Patterson's investigation was forced to go on the back burner until more resources could be allocated to their surveillance. They kind of had, they were like, well, they're definitely being, they're definitely doing some frauds, but we don't necessarily know if it's a moiter. So in November of 1998, oh, Yes. In November of 1998, um, another person went missing from uh, northern Adelaide. This was a woman named Elizabeth Hayden. So in an interview on the 26th of November 1998, um, about a week after Elizabeth disappeared, Mark Hayden, her husband, told detectives Greg Stone and Steve McCoy his version of events on the davis West disappearance. So, Mark and Elizabeth Hayden lived at a residence in Smithfield Plains, along with Elizabeth's sister-in-law, Gail, who lived in a shed at the back of their house. Gail's boyfriend, John Bunting, also regularly stayed at the house. So, at approximately 4.45pm on the 21st of November, 1998, Elizabeth Hayden's sister, Gail Sinclair, asked Mark Hayden to take her on a drive to Raynella in Adelaide's southern suburbs to meet some people who were selling a dog that Sinclair wanted to buy. So they left around the house around 5pm, they arrived at a McDonald's and Raynella that served as their meeting place, and they waited there until 8.30pm, but the people who they arranged to meet never showed up. So on the drive back, Hayden stopped at the Bolivar Caravan Park to use a payphone to tell his wife that he was on the way home, but he couldn't get through, so he stopped again a short while later at Salisbury Library to use the phone there. He spoke to John Bunting, who informed Mark Hayden that Elizabeth was upset. She'd been ranting and raving and had locked herself inside her own Mark's bedroom. So when Mark and Gail Sinclair arrived at the house around 10.30pm, John Bunting told Mark that Elizabeth had made a pass at him and had gotten upset when he'd rejected her. A likely story. A likely story. Um, Mark then went into the bedroom to talk with Elizabeth and she accused him of sleeping with her sister Gail. Mark denied the accusation. Um, And then John Bunting and Gail Sinclair left the house to go get food, leaving Mark, Elizabeth and their friend Robert Wagner at the house. Elizabeth emerged from the bedroom, um, again accused Mark of cheating on her and informed him that she was leaving for the night and that her boyfriend was coming to pick her up. Mark went to bed around 2 a.m. and at 4 a.m. he told Elizabeth, he said that Elizabeth returned home drunk and passed out on their bed. He then got up at around 10.30 a.m. and spoke to John Bunting, informing him that Elizabeth had returned home. John then left so Mark and Elizabeth could sort it out. At 11.30am, Elizabeth got up and she and Mark argued again, with Elizabeth again accusing Mark of cheating on her. She told Mark that she was leaving and that he better go and visit his father in the nursing home. Mark did so and he returned home around 4pm the next day to find that Elizabeth had not returned home and he never saw her again. So that's Mark Hayden's version of what happened. So on the 22nd of November 1998, the day after Elizabeth went missing, Mark Hayden called Garyon Sinclair, who was Elizabeth's brother, and informed him that Elizabeth had taken off. He went to Garyon's house that evening to collect two of Elizabeth's children who had been staying with Garyon, but this time he said that Elizabeth was at home sleeping. The next day, the two children, William and Christopher, arrived arrived unexpectedly at Garyon's house upset and informed Garyon that their mother was not home. Gary asked Mark Hayden if it was true, and Mark said that she had indeed left and that she had cleared out both Mark Hayden's and his father's bank accounts. On the 25th of November, 1998, Gary and Sinclair reported his sister missing. The next day, uh, that's when Mark gave his version of uh, the disappearance to the police, as did Gail Sinclair, who had a similar story to Mark. She said that Elizabeth had asked Mark... Elizabeth had asked her to take Mark out of the house for a couple of hours so that John Bunting could leave Mark's birthday present there, which was a computer, without him finding out. So Detective Stone wanted to interview the other major players in Hayden's version of events, John Bunting and Robert Wagner. So on the 30th of November 1998, the two men were interviewed by police. Their version of events was similar to Hayden and Elliot's. So John Bunting said that Elizabeth Hayden had told him, that she'd bought a new computer for Mark and wanted to hide it in the house to surprise him, and that she had asked Gail Sinclair to get Mark out of the house. While they were gone, he said that Elizabeth Hayden made sexual advances towards him, and that she had become upset and went to sulk in her bedroom when he rejected her. He said that later in the evening, when he and Gail Sinclair left to get food, Elizabeth Hayden had stared at him from the window." Ooh, creepy. Uh, John Bunting made a comment to police. So he told this whole story, came back, Elizabeth's gone, whatever. And then he made a comment that the police found odd. He warned them against letting William and Christopher stay with Elizabeth Hayden's brother Gary and Sinclair because he had heard that Gary and was a child molester. The police were like, okay, thank you, sir. Um, Then Robert Wagner spoke to police. He gave a really short statement um, and then basically corroborating everybody else's version of events and was like and now i have to leave goodbye so a friend of elizabeth's named sharon ball had heard that elizabeth had gone missing so she tried to call elizabeth four times and reached her message bank um but the voice recording on the message bank didn't sound like elizabeth and on the fifth call somebody picked up and sharon was like on the phone begging elizabeth to talk to her and elizabeth replied leave me alone i'm all right fuck off which had shocked sharon as elizabeth had never spoken to her like that before She called again, and this time she noted that Elizabeth's voice sounded distant and mechanical, like a recording on a tape. Elizabeth said, you're a slut, you're nothing but a dirty slut, and that was it. So, in the days following her disappearance, the police would make multiple visits to the Hayden's home. Um, In the first search of the property, detectives located multiple firearms in the master bedroom, as well as Elizabeth Hayden's purse, containing her personal effects such as identity documents and cards. And a neighbour would inform police that uh, before the police actually came to investigate, she had seen um, a group of men take a Toyota Land Cruiser that was parked in the front yard of the house, um, fill it with garbage bags and other things, and drive it away from the property before the police arrived. Nothing sus. Nothing sus. So enter in this other cop. So missing persons investigator, Constable Jane Forrest... So she was overseeing the progress of the Elizabeth Hayden case when she noticed a familiar name. So she knew the names John Bunting and Robert Wagner as she had investigated the Barry Lane disappearance. And she also knew that they were persons of interest in Detective Patterson's investigation into the disappearance of Clinton Trezise. And she also knew she had come across another missing persons file which had been reinvestigated by the missing persons unit. So John Bunting had given police credible-seeming information about another missing person named Susan Allen. So this is four separate missing persons cases that these this one name has come up in. So Susan Allen was reported missing on the 10th of December 1996. She had a slight mental handicap and was in the habit of bringing home other mentally handicapped men kind of frequently, um back home from bars and dances which made her a little bit of a spectacle to her neighbors in Salisbury North people liked to like people knew what was going on in Suzanne's life like they like they she was kind of like a sort of mean-spirited spectacle like people would talk about her and stuff like that because she was always doing slightly weird stuff so she had formerly been engaged to a man by the name of Ray Davies who was 20 years younger than her and also handicapped um their relationship had broken down but Suzanne had allowed Ray to live in a caravan in her backyard Ray had a history of exposing himself and masturbating around young girls in the neighborhood. Complaints were made to the police about Ray and Suzanne kicked him out. So in November of 1996, Suzanne's brother, John Martin, had told one of Suzanne's neighbors, Marilyn Nelson, that Suzanne had vanished and she'd left her pets and most of her possessions behind. He asked Marilyn to keep an eye out for Susan, which he agreed to do. On the 3rd of December 1996, Marilyn noticed a truck parked outside Susan's house there were two men going from the house to the truck. Marilyn went over and asked one of the men if she could speak to Marilyn's brother, John, and the man said he didn't know anybody by that name. Marilyn then went to call the police. So they arrived around 2.30 p.m. and asked the men what they were doing on the property. The men said that they were friends of Suzanne's and had come to help her move. One of the men produced Suzanne's house key in order to demonstrate that they were there on Suzanne's, Suzanne's orders, and the officers recorded the names of the two men in his notebook, John Justin Bunting and Robert Joe Wagner. John Martin would report Suzanne missing on the 10th of December, and police tried unsuccessfully to get back in contact with Bunting and Wagner. In February of 1997, police found that regular withdrawals were being taken out of Suzanne Allen's bank account in the suburb of Murray Bridge. The address connected to the account was also at Murray Bridge and belonged to none other than John Bunting. So in April of 1997, police made contact with Bunting, who told him that Suzanne had indeed stayed with Bunting for a short while, but had moved to either Tasmania or Mildura, and that she didn't want her brother to know where she was. The missing person's investigation then went cold, in part because they kind of believed the family dispute story, and in part because the police had lost contact with Suzanne's brother. Um, In February of 1998, the case was reopened after Suzanne's sister wrote to the Victorian police commissioner to ask for help. Um, A paper trail, including the bank account and a series of of changes of address, applied to Centrelink, as well as the fact that her car was in the possession of a friend of Suzanne's named Elizabeth Harvey, who had claimed to have recently seen Suzanne, satisfied the investigators that Suzanne was alive and just didn't want to be found. So Constable Forrest had now made the connection that John Bunting and Robert Wagner were persons of interest in at least three ongoing missing persons investigations, that being Clinton Trezise, Barry Lane, and Suzanne Allen, and were now embroiled in a fourth. So Detective Patterson, who is working on the Clinton Trezise case, informed Detective Stone and Detective McCoy, who were investigating Elizabeth Hayden's disappearance, that Bunting and Wagner were actually persons of interest in other cases, and to consider the possibility of murder in Elizabeth Hayden's case. So Detective Stone and McCoy were supposed to continue investigating Elizabeth Hayden's case as like an isolated incident, but to continue to make regular reports to major crimes regarding that process. But the connections between the cases were enough to mean that the surveillance operation on Robert Wagner and John Bunting that had stalled in late 1998 due to lack of resources could finally kick off again. So in February of 1999, Patterson was given the go-ahead to tap Wagner and Bunting's home and mobile phones, and surveillance teams began following Wagner and Bunting more regularly. A new camera was installed at the BP Express station where Barry... Lane's bank card was regularly being used, and Robert Wagner was filmed accessing the account an additional seven times. Further investigations were also made into the Centrelink account of Suzanne Allen, so her government benefits were being paid directly into her bank account that was registered to a post office box. And her residential address was given as 75 Barker Crescent, Smithfield Plains, which didn't exist. Withdrawals had been made from her account at an ATM in Murray Bridge until February of 1999 when John Bunting moved to Craigmore and the withdrawals started being made from an ATM in a nearby suburb. So security camera footage would show that the person making the withdrawals was John Bunting. They had also discovered that money was still coming out of the account of Ray Davies, Suzanne's former fiancé, who hadn't officially been reported missing but also hadn't been seen since Suzanne kicked him out in 1995. These withdrawals were being made in person at a bank branch and security camera footage would show that the person making the withdrawals was not Ray Davies, but John Bunting. Oh, it's not looking good for you, John. It's not looking good for any single person in this entire thing. So evidence from the phone tap had revealed that Bunting and Wagner had made calls to two out-of-town addresses, one in Moonta and one in Snowtown. So, on the 16th of May, 1999, Detective Patterson, Detective Brian Swan, and Field Intelligence, Officer, Field Intelligence Officer, Vicky Ram, headed out to investigate these locations. So, they're on the way to Snowtown, when the team that was surveilling Bunting and Wagner, like, called them and was like, yo, stop going to Snowtown, they're literally on the highway driving to Snowtown as well. So, the detective's like, "Oh," and go and hide out, so the surveillance team can follow Bunting and Wagner. Right. So they follow them to the home of a man named Darren Freeman at Railway, who lived at Railway Terrace in Snowtown. So they're in the house for a while. They leave a short time later. They head to the center of town. The surveillance team lose the track, which I don't understand how it happened because Snowtown is the smallest town in the world and I don't understand, looking at Google Maps, how they, like, lost track of them from Railway Terrace to the center of town because it's literally, like, 200 meters away, but whatever. Um... So they disappear somewhere in town and then they re-get the trail when Bunting and Wagner return to their car and head out of town. And the surveillance teams are like, okay, go, 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 you're safe. So uh, Detective Patterson and Swan and Field Intelligence Officer Ram, I don't know if that's her official title. I don't know what, if they have a title when you're a Field Intelligence Officer. I couldn't find anything on Google. Anyway, also don't know? No. I'm just going to call her Officer Ram. Officer Ram. Officer Ram, at your service.
1: So she sounds like she could have a kick-ass TV show.
2: Oh, for sure. For sure. I don't know anything about this woman, but she sounds like a boss-ass bitch. So they then went to the address at Railway Terrace, um, and in the driveway of the residence, they could see the Toyota Land Cruiser that a witness had seen, filled with garbage bags and then removed from Mark Hayden's property right after Elizabeth Hayden's disappearance. So this Ooh. car, they, they, they knew what it looked like. It was, like, a dual-tone, like, 90s-style Land Cruiser. Of course, it was 90s-style. It was the 90s. Um, and they had been trying to, like, locate where this car was. They were like, we don't know what's in that car, but we know they drove it away from Mark Hayden's house right after Elizabeth Hayden disappeared. There's some shit in that car. We need that car. So they found it at Railway Terrace. So, a few days later, on the 20th of May, 1999, Detective Stone and McCoy returned. Also, Stone and McCoy is such a... Oh, like, right? What a cop duo. They are such like, like a... Like Jensen
1: and Holes.
2: Yeah, like Rizzoli and Isles. Like, they've, they've got the cop name going. So, they returned to the property at Railway Terrace uh, with a group of local police, um, major crimes detectives, and crime scene investigators. So, Detective McCoy... Showed <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Cause I was also just thinking about that other British procedural rosemary and time and the last I, I couldn't <laughs> stop laughing. Rosemary and Time, the iconic, like well named police buddy cop team. Amazing. Um Macaroni and Cheese. Oh, that would be us if we were if we were <laughs> protected. <laughs> I am cheese, you are macaroni. I'm macaroni. <laughs> Anyway, this is an incredibly serious crime. I'm so sorry. So, <laughs> we got told, We got brought up on a, a review the other day that we laughed too much. I'm so sorry. It is a fundamentally a comedy show with true crime facts. So, I think, you know, I'm always thrilled when we make a joke because we're under the comedy section in iTunes. Yeah, we are. We got to make at least one joke or, you know, or we get kicked out. Okay. All right, I'm anyway, ready. Anyway, Rosemary and Time was our allocated joke. Yep. So, <laughs> Detective McCoy showed Darren Freeman a search warrant and said he was there in relation to the disappearance of Elizabeth Hayden and that the four-wheel drive parked in his driveway was possibly involved in the disappearance. So officers, some officers searched inside the home, um, Detective Stone started examining the vehicle, and Detective McCoy interviewed Mr Freeman in a patrol car outside. Freeman told him that some friends of his John Bunting and Robert Wagner had asked if they could store the vehicle at Freeman's previous residence which Freeman had agreed to and it had moved with him when he relocated to Snowtown. He told McCoy that it had previously held several large black plastic barrels that had smelled terrible and caused complaints from the neighbors. He told McCoy that Bunting and Wagner had moved the barrels to be stored in an in the old bank building in the center of town to which freeman had a key so half the officers continued the search of the freeman's house while the others rushed to investigate the old bank building so they get in with freeman's key and they they're recording the whole time so the bank was filled with a uh, random clutter the counter was stacked with cardboard boxes filled with computer parts and other electronics and there were tvs and computer monitors all over the floor There was a plastic shopping bag hanging from a door near the counter filled with rubbish and a receipt for air freshener, gloves, and black garbage bags. Air freshener and garbage bags would later be located behind the counter. The bank vault itself was locked and police had to return to Freeman's house to find out how they could access it. And Freeman returned with the officers and showed him a large coil of wire from which they would cut off a piece and use it to open the faulty lock on the vault door. A black plastic sheet covered the entrance to the vault. Detective Stone peeled the strip of tape from the top of the sheet. A terrible smell, previously mostly contained by the plastic, filled the air. Inside the vault were six plastic barrels standing on top of more black plastic sheets. On one barrel, there was a pair of silver handcuffs and a knife. On another, there were two more knives and a pair of rubber gloves. On a lounge chair was a white plastic tray with seven more knives, two boxes of disposable gloves, a wooden-handled saw and a belt. Oh, it sounds like something out of Dexter. This is so fucked. Oh, my God. Uh, On another lounge chair in the corner of the room were three plastic bottles of hydrochloric acid. No. Yes. Oh, my God. Yep. Okay, keep going. So there were some other items scattered around the room. Um, Some air freshener, a pair of sneakers, and some garbage bags. Air freshener is not going to do shit. Air freshener is not going to do shit. It's... Air freshener is not going to do shit. The fact that they thought. Anyway. Anyway. So, Detective McCoy uh, made the call back to the Adelaide CIB to inform them that the bodies were likely being stored in the old Snowtown bank, and reinforcements were then sent over. So, this whole huge team, I think it ended up being 50 police officers rolled on back to snowtown at night snowtown has like three and a half buildings and like six people so they were all like what is going on so they were like oh we'll just tell everybody that it's a drug bust nobody's you know that's a good cover story um but anyway tons of people were still watching um as you can imagine it was probably the most exciting thing that's ever happened in snowtown so Jesus. crime scene investigators alone entered the bank building um, and they again recorded the whole proceedings on video. So they recorded all of the various debris in the bank room. Um, they found more garbage bags. They found a, a bunch of weird stuff. They found garbage bags, rope, a soft drink bottle, a half-eaten bag of chips, a Stanley knife, and electric cables with alligator clips attached to the end in the cupboards underneath the bank counter. So they re-entered the vault. Um, the police labelled the barrels A through F. The crime scene investigators had to wear special breathing a- apparatuses because of the smell, but also because of the potentially harmful presence of acid. They'd seen the bottles of hydrochloric acid. They didn't know if they were being used, but because they were yeah. there, they had to, you know, take precautions. Jess is freaking mm. out. Mm. The, <laughs> the investigator unscrewed the tops of barrels A and B and prized open the caps. Inside, human remains were visible, partially submerged in liquid. Jesus. Yep. Items of clothing and rubber gloves were also visible. Barrels C through F were also opened and confirmed to contain human remains. Although it seemed like there was more than just the five who were subject to the investigation. They were then sealed back on up and taken to the state forensic lab in Adelaide. So Dr. John Gilbert examined the contents of the barrels the next day, the 21st of May, 1999. So the barrels were weighed and the fluid was poured out into 44-gallon drums. The contents of each barrel were recorded by Dr. Gilbert. I'm going to describe the contents of one just so you know how the science was done and how it was recorded. I'm not going to say all of them because it's not that kind of show. But I think it's important to kind of know what we were dealing with. So barrel A contained one intact male body wearing a jumper. This body was placed into a body bag that was marked A1. Uh, Two matted lumps of hair, four slabs of skin with muscles attached, two disarticulated femurs, one disarticulated right lower leg with the foot missing, and one disarticulated left lower leg with the partially dislocated left foot were placed into a body bag marked A2. There were also pieces of plastic, electrical wire, and rubber gloves found in the barrel. The other barrels were investigated, and their contents were recorded in a similar manner. Both full bodies and uh, individual body parts were found in each of the barrels, resulting in eight bodies in total. It would not be possible to identify these bodies on site, but it was assumed that the five of the bodies belonged to the five who were the subject of the investigation, with an additional three unknown bodies. Not on this day, but the bodies would later be identified using a combination of DNA, fingerprint analysis, and x-rays, as Michael Gardner, age 19, Barry Lane, age 42, Gavin Porter, age 29, Troy Ude, age 21, Fred Brooks, age 18, Gary O'Dwyer, age 29, Elizabeth Hayden, age 37, and David Johnson, age 24. So, on the same Jesus day that the bodies. Right. I know. X rays. X rays. X rays. I think DNA was the primary way they identified the bodies. Obviously, they um, had. they Because they knew at least five of them, they were able to identify them. With DNA, yeah. Um, I think some people had criminal records, so I think fingerprints were probably used with that. But yeah, X rays. I haven't, I haven't seen what the bodies look like, but they weren't able to be identified on site. That is
1: cooked, and I'm really glad you haven't seen the bodies, Ellen.
2: Oh, I'm thrilled. Except I've had this image in my mind for the past few weeks of like my imagination of what I think it looked like, and it's been haunting me. Yeah, it has been haunting me I just can see this barrel like just like with liquid in it and just like unidentifiable clumps of flesh and every time I close my eyes that's what I see I'm never doing a case like this ever again I also keep on thank you please I also keep on imagining that I can smell like decay No, no no I you know I live in an area right now where there is like often a lot of roadkill and I often see like you know body parts and bones and i've smelled you know decaying animals before but everybody says that the smell of human decay and the smell of animal decay is quite different and i just keep on imagining (sighs) that smell but worse anyway this isn't a therapy session but that's what's going on in my brain at this moment in time i feel like there's like some exposure therapy going on right now yeah i mean i feel like you need to traumatize everybody else because i've been traumatized yeah okay
1: cool cool cool
2: cool all right so on the same day that the bodies were being examined um Officers had been called to a briefing that morning at 5am at the Major Crimes headquarters. So, Head of Major Crimes, Paul Schram, briefed the officers on the facts of the case. I imagine being a police officer who didn't know what was going on, your boss calls you in at 5am and is like, look, here's what's happened. It's never going to be it's good. It's not going to be good. It's
1: not like it's going to be for birthday. No,
2: birthday, exactly. Birthday, it's but... not going to be a celebration. It's because something supremely effed has happened. So... He calls them in, briefs them on the facts of the case, plays them the video footage of what had been found at the bank. And the plan is um, that the three persons of interest, John Bunting, Robert Wagner and Mark Hayden, were to be arrested and charged with one count of murder of a person's unknown. So they, they hadn't, as I said before, they hadn't identified any of the bodies at this point in time. They just knew that someone was dead. Yeah. So three teams would go out and conduct three simultaneous raids on the suspects, who were under intense police surveillance. So at 6.47am, detectives arrived at John Bunting's house at Bandara Crescent, Craigmore. A young man by the names of James Velasquez opened the doors. So the detectives entered the house, and John Bunting appeared into the hallway. The detectives identified themselves and said that they were investigating the disappearances of Clinton Trezise, Barry Lane, Elizabeth Hayden, Ray Davies, and Suzanne Allen, and that he was under arrest on suspicion of the murder of an unidentified person. Bunting was informed of his rights and informed that he could make a telephone call and was told that he was entitled to refrain from answering any questions while in custody. He was then searched, handcuffed, and taken to the police station. Robert Wagner was arrested at Elizabeth Grove by Detective Patterson. He informed the detectives that he wasn't going to say anything. Detectives Stone and McCoy arrested Mark Hayden at Smithfield Plains, and he also did not communicate with police. Mark Hayden was known for not being a talkative person. Um, I don't think he said, in the context of both of these episodes, I don't think he says a single word. Um, So the three suspects were taken to the Adelaide Police Station and they were taken to separate interview rooms. So John Bunting was, like, all set up, all ready to be interviewed by um, Detective Stapleton, who was the arresting officer, and Detective Presgrave, but he refused to be interviewed at the last minute and insisted on being allowed to make a phone call to legal aid. Calls were made to legal aid to find Bunting a lawyer. He was then taken to the City Watch House and formally charged with one count of murder. He was taken to the police medical examiner and had hair and blood samples taken to be possibly used for in the future for DNA purposes. Robert Wagner also had hair and blood samples taken and Mark, Mark Hayden had hair and blood samples as well as scrapings from under his fingernails and toenails and had his clothing taken from him. I don't know why they scraped underneath his toenails. I don't know either, but I'm terrified. I'm terrified too. As well as the three main suspects, um, John Bunting's partner, Elizabeth Harvey, was also taken in by police. She wasn't under arrest, but she was questioned for two hours in relation to her possible involvement in assisting Bunting to steal money from his victims. She had said that she had been with Bunting since 1994 and that he was taking care of her while she was dying of cancer. She admitted to police that she had known three of the five missing persons who had kicked off the investigations, Barry Lane, Elizabeth Hayden and Suzanne Allen. Police asked her if she was surprised that police believed that Bunting and Robert Wagner were involved with their murders, and Elizabeth said that she didn't believe it and police were barking up the wrong tree. When asked if she was aware that Bunting had been videotaped accessing money that belonged to the missing persons, Elizabeth Harvey said that she didn't know anything about it. She was then asked if she had ever changed Suzanne Allen's pension type or address, which she denied. Detectives then informed her that they had found a letter from Centrelink addressed to Suzanne Allen in her handbag. And Elizabeth said she didn't know anything about it. She continued to deny her involvement or knowledge of the fraud until the interview was over. But on the drive home, Elizabeth decided to change her story and she was taken back to the police station. So she said that she had only vaguely known Suzanne Allen and that one day John Bunting had come home and said that he had found Suzanne dead, slumped over in the bathtub. He said that he and Robert Wagner had been robbing the place when they found her. They disposed of Suzanne Allen's body and didn't inform police of her death because they didn't want to be arrested for the robbery. Suzanne's property was taken from her home and sold off. Bunting kept Suzanne's bank card but couldn't use it as he didn't have the PIN. He told Elizabeth Harvey to impersonate Suzanne Allen at the bank to get a new card and PIN number. Elizabeth used Suzanne's card for a year, taking the money that Centrelink deposited deposited into her account every fortnight before giving the card back to Bunting. The police elected not to arrest Elizabeth Harvey for fraud so they could continue to keep her somewhat on side and utilize her as a witness in a possible future trial. So another vital witness would soon come to the attention of police. A man named Wally Fitzgerald had telephoned police in relation to his friend, James Vlasakis. I realized I pronounced it wrong the first time I said it and I literally practiced the pronunciation of his surname. It's Vlasakis. Vlasakis. Vlasakis, yes. The amount of times I replayed that thing, I was like, Lasakis, Lasakis, Lasakis. Anyway, so James, who everybody called Jamie, was Elizabeth Harvey's son. John Bunting had been like a father to him. He had called Fitzgerald on that day and told him that his mother had been taken away for fraud and that John had been charged with murder and he wanted Fitzgerald to go and get his heroin for him. Fitzgerald thought that he was bullshitting and hung up the phone but Vasakis came round to Fitzgerald's place distraught and told him that he had known all about the murders and had witnessed and even participated in some. He also told Fitzgerald that there were two other bodies the police didn't know about. Fitzger- Fitzgerald then called Crime Stoppers and told them the location of the burial site. So then, police headed out to the address given at Waterloo Corner Road, Salisbury North, on the 23rd of May, 1999. the p- The property had been lived in by John Bunting in the early to mid 90s. Um, the police were armed with ground-penetrating radar technology that had previously been used as a forensic tool in the UK to locate the remains in the Fred and Rosemary West case. Oh. which was a Patreon-only episode of ours that you should go and listen to. <laughs> and we, I definitely didn't
1: vomit after Right, that was, that was one of
2: the grossest episodes <laughs> that, okay. we've ever done. Um, so the, gro- the ground-penetrating radar found anomalies under a concrete slab in the corner of the backyard. The crime scene investigators used sledgehammers and crowbars to break up the concrete slab, then dug down almost two metres until they found 11 garbage bags buried in the earth.
1: Jesus Christ. One of the bags was
2: open and it was evident that it contained human remains. Forensic examination the next day determined that the body had been disarticulated at the joints and the torso and limbs had been defleshed. The body was an adult white female. Three days later, the police returned to Waterloo Corner Road to continue digging in the earth. Another body was found two meters deeper than the first. These remains were skeletal and were not inside bags. The forensic pathologist identified the bones as belonging to an adult male. The skeleton was complete and there was no soft tissue attached to the bones and there were no signs of injury or mutilation. The skeleton was at least two years old. So Wally Fitzgerald had given Jamie Vilsakis the name of his solicitor and the solicitor arranged an interview with police saying that Jamie was willing to confess to his knowledge of the murders. The solicitor tried to set it up so that Jamie would be granted immunity for his confession
1: Nah, son.
2: Not going to happen. Sorry, Jamie. Um, So he was interviewed on the 24th of May 1999 by Detective Stone and Detective McCoy. Um, Jamie wasn't under arrest, so the interview couldn't be used as evidence against him, but it could be used to build the case against Bunting, Wagner, and Hayden. The interview would end up lasting 10 full days. Jamie, who was a heroin addict, was so distressed by the ordeal that he nearly died of an overdose in the middle of it. So although the police had found eight bodies... By this point, they hadn't looked at Waterloo Corner Road yet. Vlisakis um, had told them of 12 murders, some of which he had been present for and some of which he had only heard about from Bunting. The story that Vlisakis told police was harrowing and almost unbelievable. He said that Bunting and Wagner were sadistic killers who had tortured their victims, shocking them with electricity, burning them and removing their toenails or crushing their toes with pliers. The victims had been forced to call Bunting and Wagner names like God, Master and Lord Sir. They had been forced to record messages telling their loved ones that they were leaving and that they didn't want to see them again. He told police that the motive for the murders was Bunting and Wagner's sick obsessions with pedophiles and their desire to do away with any people they considered to be dirty. So after Vlasakis' lengthy confession, he was arrested and charged with murder. He attempted suicide twice and was placed in a prison psychiatric facility. His solicitor had tried to argue for immunity, as I said, but it was denied. So, um, essentially because, you know, he had, even though his role was not as great as Bunting and Wagner's, he had still participated in at least four murders and knew about more. So there was no way that immunity was going to be on the table. But Jamie's confession was instrumental in directing the investigation of Task Force Chart, which was the task force set up to investigate the murders and gather evidence for trial. So Jamie had given the police names of victims, dates, and places where crimes had occurred. And the task force, based on this information and also investigation... The task force uncovered a huge amount of circumstantial evidence that corroborated Jamie's story, including hundreds of personal documents and other personal items like furniture and other property at a series of locations related to the accused, such as the ceiling of John Bunting's home, a car belonging to Elizabeth Harvey, and a storage facility rented by Bunting. The ceiling? Yeah, so he hid a lot of things. In the next episode, you'll hear, um, but okay he a lot of stuff was hidden the ceiling was a good hiding place i guess for him lots of things were hidden in various ceilings around the place so the evidence was overwhelming but it would still be one of the longest trials in south australian history i think in australian history i think it may have been the longest trial in australian history so uh jamie's first confession was given in may of 1999 but it wouldn't be until 11th of december 2001 that the committal hearing would begin Initially, Bunting, Wagner, and Hayden were to be charged with 10 counts of murder and Jamie Vlasakis would be charged with five. So the committal hearing, not not the trial, but just the committal hearing, lasted eight months. Unsurprisingly, it was a tumultuous process. It had become apparent in the course of the committal hearing that Mark H- Hayden's role in the murders was not as prominent as that of Wagening and Bunting. Wagner and Bunting's. So the prosecution... The prosecution tried to argue that Hayden was equally guilty for all the murders as he had taken part in a joint enterprise, but the judge disagreed. Um, It was decided that Hayden would be tried separately to the other two. Um, One of the major witnesses, Elizabeth Harvey, um, died of cancer in February of 2001, so she was never able to give her testimony. So on the 19th of June, 2001, while the committal hearing was ongoing, Jamie Vlasakis pleaded guilty to four counts of murder. So the prosecution and Vlasakis' defence lawyers had brokered a deal. Jamie would plead guilty to four counts of murder in exchange for his testimony against Bunting, Wagner and Hayden. The prosecution, in return, would not oppose the setting of a non-parole period. So Jamie was sentenced to life in prison with a non-parole period of 26 years, which means he'll be eligible for parole in 2025 when he'll be 46 years old. So a month... That's so soon. It's so soon. It's in six short years, baby. I know. So a month after Lasarcus's guilty plea, the committal hearing for the other three murderers reached its end. Magistrate David Gurry determined that there was sufficient evidence for each of the murderers to stand trial. Not at all surprising. Bunting, Wagner and Hayden ended up pleading not guilty to 10 counts of murder on 13th of August 2001 and pled not guilty again in February of 2002 to the two additional charges for the murders of Clinton Trezise and Thomas Trevelyan. Hayden would end up only standing trial for two counts of murder and six counts of assisting offenders. And another shock would happen before the trial would even take place. Robert Wagner ended up pleading guilty to three of the 12 counts. So on... The 16th of October, 2002, more than three years after the initial arrests, John Bunting and Robert Wagner's trial was to begin. 15 jury members were selected instead of the usual 12, because on the first day of trial, one jury member literally begged to be removed from the jury because they couldn't handle the gory details on the first day. Oh my god. Yeah. Literally the first First day, freaking like, Wendy Abraham QC comes down. She's like, okay, get this. There were eight bodies in a barrel. One jury is like, I am out. I'm done. <laughs> I will not continue with this. I don't blame I you. I also do not blame them. So they ended up having 15 jury instead of 12, so they had alternates. So if you want to find out if you're tougher than that one jury person, you will have to wait till next episode because we're going to go into the details in part two. Are you ready for part two? My god! Oh my god! I feel physically ill. It's gonna get so much worse.
1: Yay! It's going to
2: get awesome. So I love that for us.
1: <laughs> that's such a that's such a mood for my life at the moment. Yeah, um,
2: it's just constantly getting worse. Okay,
1: cool, great. I feel sick, mm-hmm. so I am gonna go take a break. Nice, um, but yeah. So we will see you in a fort- fortnight's time for part two of Snowtown, covered by Ellen Rose. And yeah, great. <laughs>
2: I hope you guys enjoyed oh that. Ozzy. I hope you guys are ready for more and not like as depressed as I am. Not like that juror. Not like that juror. <laughs> Imagine the jurors listening and was like, "It was really gross, you guys. Don't blame me."
1: Yeah. No. No. Don't blame, you. Don't okay, blame cool. me. Okay. Cool. We'll see you in a fortnight time, guys. Okay. Bye. Wait. Are you gonna do like
2: social medias or like send us an email or our oh, usual? Oh right. <laughs> Yeah, I'm so
1: sorry. I just want to so switch off. Um, yes, if you would like to contact us, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. Um, I feel really ill. Um, and you can also email any case suggestions because we are coming up on our, our Western Australia season. So after um, the part two of Snowtown, I've got one more case. And then I think we're ready to move on to Western Australia or do we have one more I think after that? we
2: have that? one more
1: after that. Okay, stunning. Um, yeah, so... We've got a. Western Australia is a big, big place. So I can imagine there's like some cooks. There's some
2: good ones. I kind of already have some ideas about what I want to do, but I want suggestions. I want to do more cases that. We love suggestions. And we just love to hear from you.
1: Um, Yeah, cool. Okay, cool. I'm going to go die. All right. Bye. Bye.
0: broadband moving all around your home so you can start flexing in the living room One, two, three. and that sourdough can start rising in the kitchen for streaming from the front door to the attic connect with our best ever wi-fi all around your home sky broadband your world is limitless for more information see sky.ie forward slash speeds Grenke, 100% your finance partner for fast, accessible cash flow solutions. Get back to business with Grenke. Get the latest equipment you need and keep your cash where you need it in your business through leasing and invoice finance. We make credit decisions in 20 minutes and can pay your supplier or fund your chosen invoices within 24 hours of completion. We finance 100% of the asset, no deposits needed, and you can lease equipment from as little as €500 upwards. Grenke, your finance partner for fast, efficient leasing and invoice finance options. That's G-R-E-N-K-E.